going to be talking about um, uh, the p personal is political and about identity politics. And we've got uh, Joanna Williams here who's going to talk about the, about the, the problem of identity politics. And David here is going to talk about uh, the emergence of identity politics in the 60s. And then where the final speaker is David uh, Wilkinson, who's going to be talking about um, the personal is political in relation to music. Yeah, we're just taking it through from the 60s on to the 70s and 80s and through, right. the, through the punk era, really. Great. So the, the panel is very uh, tightly focused. But, so we're going to start off with uh, Joanna. Thank you. Um, it does seem a little bit strange because when I started thinking about what I was going to speak about this afternoon, I'd looked at the arrest of the agenda of what was going on today, and I kind of thought this was the first session to be discussing identity politics. But I think what's really interesting, as um, I've been in the two previous sessions, is to see how much identity politics has come out in both of those two sessions as well. And it does strike a chord with me that identity politics, and I, and I think it's important one thing I would try and do is unpick a little bit, and perhaps in the discussion, just unpick a little bit what we mean exactly by identity politics, because I think it, it is in danger of becoming one of those phrases that gets thrown around a little bit nowadays, without, and we, we run the risk of losing what, what it actually means. Um, but it does seem to be underpinning so much of what we're talking about. It seems as if every discussion that we've had seems to loop back a little bit to this kind of nebulous concept of identity politics. So what I want to do this afternoon is really to try and unpick a little bit what, what I think it means, why I think it's a problem, where I think it's come from, and perhaps even if I have time to touch on a little bit about what I think we could perhaps do about it. Um, but just to reiterate, um, I mean, what, what I see as being identity politics is this idea of the personal is political being put into practice, and it seems to be put into practice in so many um, issues. It's, it, it, if you look at, um, just, just to take some recent examples that have come up that I'm sure everyone's familiar with from the past couple of weeks, so, so the number one issue bugging Americans at the moment, not counting Donald Trump, seems to be where they go to the toilet, and um, everybody from Obama... Uh, down seems to have weighed in on which is the correct toilet for people to use. Um, we, when we move away from bathrooms, as opposed to would say in America, we um, come to student accommodation. And a new story that um, I thought was quite well shouldn't have surprised me, but did surprise me a little bit uh, in the news. I think this time last week, the announcement from Birmingham University. I don't think they've actually taken the decision yet, but it's it's certainly being discussed whether there should be separate housing for um, a gay and lesbian students uh, and, and transgender students, whether there should be separate student accommodation. You, it parallels a similar discussion which has been taking place in the US as to whether there should be um, separate accommodation for black students. I think if we were sat here having this uh, discussion 20, 30 years ago, it would have been assumed, or I mean, go back even further, 50, 60 years ago, it would have been assumed that that was the state making those decisions to segregate people for all kinds of negative reasons. Nowadays, it's actually completely the opposite, and this is student groups themselves who are demanding segregated, I mean, I would use that word segregated because I think this is what it is, uh, segregated separate accommodation, arguing that it's to, to protect their safety, essentially, that they want separate accommodation as a, as a safe space within the university. Uh, we've also had, um, again, I'm sure 
sure people have come across this story that seems to have rumbled on for quite a while now. The uh, Roads Must Fall campaigner from Oxford who on a trip back to South Africa uh, upset the white waitress and instead of leaving a tip wrote on the... Um, uh, what's it called, the, the bill, uh, you can have a tip when you give us back our land and then people raise money for the white waitress who was reduced to tears and he has now come out and defended what he did and he said he was playing a, uh, an important role in disrupting whiteness. Um, and then we can think about what that means. Uh, another news story people might have picked up on the student from Bristol University who wrote uh, creative writing, uh, an, a, a story, a work of fiction on his blog. He had that, um, he was told by the university to remove that story. It was a story, again, fiction, um, but it was about rape. And the, the women students who had asked him, uh, alerted the university to this crime. Um, basically made the claim that, that one of the problems with the story was the fact that it was written by a man. Um, rape was a woman's issue and women could write about rape, but it wasn't something for men to comment upon. We've had similar took place at Oxford University last year where the idea of men speaking in a debate about abortion was seen as being a reason for the debate to be cancelled uh, because men shouldn't be able to express an opinion on abortion. So I think all of these things really you've got um, at the heart of each one of those issues a, a, a sense that the personal is political, of identity politics being played out in practice, the, the kind of logical consequences of the theory of identity politics being played out. Um, but I, I think those are just very, very obvious examples. I think there are far more pervasive everyday examples. I might be massively in danger of um, revealing one of my own insecurities here, but I certainly am very aware that I've been asked to speak on pads, completely not counting this one, I hasten to add, um, where I kind of feel deep down that I know that the reason why I've been asked to speak on the panel is because someone somewhere wants to tick a box that they've got a woman on the panel, and um, you know, it kind of feels a little bit undermining when you begin, if you suspect that that's why you're there, not because of anything particularly interesting that you might have to say, but because somebody wants to to tick that we've got a female panellist box. Um, so I think identity politics really kind of is politics nowadays and it is um, at the heart of so much of what's going on. I, I just want to highlight then a few reasons, you know, if, it, if it's not obvious, a few of the more um, things that are problematic about this, this turn um, that, that we've experienced politically. Um, so just to, to kind of name a few things randomly, I think politi identity politics is underpinned by a narcissism. I think it both emerges from and reinforces a culture of narcissism. It really places a focus on the self. Um, it, it forces us uh, to continually focus upon ourselves as individuals, the most mundane, I think, aspects of our lives, and to continually engage in this process of working out who we are rather than working out how we can relate to the outside world or how we can relate to other people. The kind of real navel-gazing, working out who we are. I think it's very interesting if you um, listen to or read a lot of the discussions that seem to be kind of never out of the media nowadays around transgenderism. And you notice these kind of recurring phrases, um, and I'm not quite sure how that process happens of a recurring phrase, but there are certain phrases that crop up again and again. And one of them is 
is, you know, gender's not biological, but, but it's a feeling that is innate. Um, and this idea that, that you, your gender is not what's between your legs, it's what's between your ears, but, but it's this innate feeling, and you have to work out what you have to presumably give time over to working out what your innate gender identity is. You have to go through this process. And, and that's one thing that I don't like about identity politics. I think it, it encourages a dwelling on the individual. It encourages us to dwell upon ourselves. I think following on from that, it's also very, very conservative because it focuses on who we are rather than what we have the potential to become, rather than what we think, say, or do. It's the most fundamental basic innate biological put it however you will characteristics about us that come to define us I'd rather not be defined as a woman I would rather be defined or judged let's say on the basis of, of like I said of what I think say and do rather than just who I am um, but you can see this kind of working out very myopically um, you, uh, another kind of report I know we talked about this in the last session um, but the NUS conference just gone uh, apparently when people registered for when the students went to the NUS conference and registered for the conference there was uh, a table with badges these are not just name badges uh, but a table with, with pronoun badges so people could select the pronoun badge that they wanted so they could indicate to the other delegates how they wanted to be identified how they identified themselves as for the duration of the conference and I think it, that, that focus on who we are rather than what we can do I think is very unhelpful I think that then leads to another problem I have with identity politics which is the divisiveness of it um, it focuses on what divides us on what, what what's different about us rather than what we have in common we're encouraged to put ourselves into a box an identity box attach a label to ourselves and these boxes seem to become year on year ever smaller so whereas gender was two things now I, I mean I, you know I lose count but somebody said this morning 23 or you know I've heard 78 the various different numbers so the boxes become ever smaller Danger, the dangerous thing I think that goes along with that is not only do we are we encouraged to put ourselves in a box not only do the boxes become ever smaller um, but there's this assumption that we we cannot speak either about or on behalf of anyone who is outside of the particular box that we are in. So if you go back to the uh, kind of enlightenment idea, if you like, oh, nothing that is human is alien to me. Now we're saying everything that is human is alien to me because everything that's outside of my own little box is, I cannot pass comment on it. I cannot know about it. I cannot experience it. Therefore, I cannot talk to that. I cannot have anything in common essentially is what we're saying with anyone else in humanity other than the very, very small number of people who look like me. Um, fourthly, problems with identity politics. I think it's anti-political, um, which is a bit of a, an irony with the name that we attach to it, um, because I think, for me, politics is about change, and I think, anti um, I think identity politics is not about change, it's about recognition. Um, so if you look at 
different things again um, to pick the transgender example the um, banning or, or the petition to have certain speakers mainly Julie Bindel, Jermaine Greer banned because they provide an existential attack their, their, their presence or what they would say would provide an existential attack on the existence of transgender people it's a, a, a crusade for rec a demand for, for recognition um, and the, it's a demand for recognition from official sources the recognition legitimises your own identity and your own identity only becomes legitimate in the process of being recognised and the more insecure and fragile and vulnerable people feel about their own identities the more constructed the sense of your identity is the more people demand this official recognition and the more um, that demand for official recognition must involve banning other people it takes on a very censorious logic it also takes on a very therapeutic logic because again in, instead of being about change and focused on change in the external world it's about recognition and the therapeutic um, within so the creation of a safe space if you like for you to be who you are within your safe space um, finally and most flippantly, not finally overall, but finally in my problems bit, and this, this is going to sound incredibly flippant, and, and I suppose I am being flippant here, I also just think identity politics is incredibly boring, you know, because at the end of the day it does leave us discussing toilets and bedrooms, when actually I think there are far more interesting and important things in the world that we could be engaging in. Um, so just very quickly then to pick up on um, some key trends as to where I think this has emerged from and I know other people are going to be talking about this so I won't go on about it no, too no. long a couple of minutes sorry I'll be very very, quick, very, very quickly then um, I think um, three things essentially that I'm pointing to as to where this has come from um, I think what, what's happened first we've, we've abandoned grand narratives which sounds very very grand um, but the, the universalism of the enlightenment going beyond that the collapse of left and right this would be my, my yeah the collapse of left and right the collapse of communism um, and capitalism as big competing forces in the world this idea that you can have universals that people have something in common with people who don't look like them the idea as I said earlier that nothing that is human is alien to me has gone nobody there's no real belief anymore in universalism the second thing that's gone along with that then is the collapse of class politics and this is something that's been touched upon in other sessions today this idea that you see yourself as having vested interests with other people who are in the same social class as you this idea of a working class identity that is more than just a cultural identity related to the type of food and the type of comedians you find funny but actually means something more to do with what your interests are so I think one the abandonment of grand narratives two the collapse of class politics and three and this is where again I, I kind of mentioned this in one of the sessions earlier but where I, I do point the finger at the left is the left's um, loss of faith in the masses, if you like, the left's loss of faith, and, and maybe I'm being unfair saying the whole of the left, but certainly a section of the left uh, that's lost faith in people, and I think we can see this, and I won't reiterate them, but in discussions around the EU, discussions around, I was talking at lunchtime about such things as the sugar tax, which are quite, where people are often quite happy to write off whole sections of the working classes, they're all obese, they've all got rotten teeth, and this kind of real condescension towards um, um, 
working class people. Um, I, I think you also see it a lot in education, the view that working class children need schools to parent them um, because working class parents are so feckless. So this is not what I think, but this is what I think is often being said out there. Working class parents are so feckless, they can't parent their own children. So schools need to take on that caring role. And the flip side to that is that children themselves can't cope with challenging knowledge. What, what they need is a kind of nurturing environment. And I think these three trends come together to give the message that we have nothing in common with anyone other than the small group who look like us. Uh, what we need is a retreat from the world, a safe space where we can just recognise and acknowledge our personal suffering rather than focusing on the outside world and what we can all do in common. Thanks very much. Okay, um, well, as Joanna has identified, one of the problems with identity politics is it makes us focus on the self, on my group, uh, and the immediate, the present. Um, and what I want to do is try and give that some kind of sense of history. Where does identity politics come from? Um, and it takes me back to really what is effectively the major reconfiguration of the left that takes place back in the 1960s. And here I'm going to focus in particular on, on the US. Uh, the US undoubtedly is the, the centre from which identity politics emerges. I mean, one of the main focuses we've been thinking about is, is uh, sexuality. And of course, you know, it's 1969, the Stonewall riots that gives um, uh, meaning to what we now talk, talk of as the pride parades and so on. So I'm going to be talking principally about the US. And, and the reason for that is there's something very distinctive about the US context. Uh, and it's that distinctiveness which I think um, becomes globalised through the influence of the new left and indeed the counterculture. So first of all, three dimensions to uh, the new left and the counterculture as it emerges. What, what were some of the main influences on the way that people started to talk and think their sensibilities at this time? The first of them, um, identified by Frederick Jameson, is the anti-colonialism of the post-war world which conveys to the left a really important language about self-determination, about autonomy, uh, and about liberation. And those sorts of ideas, those, that kind of terminology, becomes profoundly important in, in re-inflecting the emphases of the left. Secondly, and remember I'm talking about the US context here, we have, of course, the Black Civil Rights Movement, one of the great movements of the 20th century, uh, beginning, in, uh, or at least in its militant uh, phase, in the, in the mid-1950s, uh, and uh, galvanising so much of the left, including uh, white student movements uh, from the 1960s onwards, um, and from 1966 becoming increasingly um, uh, emphatic about their own uh, self rights to self-determination uh, and autonomy, to the extent of, uh, through black power, asserting the importance of black people taking the central role, the foremost role, in organising their own struggle. Um, one... Uh, argument about that is that that then releases a whole range of white radicals, uh, energised and critical uh, to, to move into other kinds of, of movements from that point onwards. Um, but it becomes very much the model for other movements at that time. Uh, of course, lesbian and gay pride takes the very word pride from black pride. So that is really very much a, a, a crucial model for um, many of the identity movements that emerge um, uh, in the 1960s. 
Um, the final one is more complex, I think, and that has to do with the nature of the new left and the counterculture, specifically in the, in, in the United States, and it has a bearing on some of the things that Joanna was talking about. When, in 1968, Theodore Rozak coins the word counterculture, he does so in order to define a specifically US left. And he says, you know, I've been over in, in Europe, and the problem with the European left is that they're still deluded by these terms, socialism. And they still have the conviction that the working class can be the agent of change. We don't have that. That's his argument. And it's a good thing. And then he goes on to anatomise the nature of the US left. Um, and we can go back to the uh, early 1960s with the emergence of the uh, Students for a Democratic Society, the main new left student body at that time, and the kinds of shifts in language and thinking that take place. Um, it calls itself the new left, of course, thereby differentiating itself from and indeed disparaging the old left, an old left that thinks in terms of socialism and class, uh, and a new left that repudiates that kind of emphasis um, not least because of the constituency of that kind of student-based movement, um, but also because the word socialist doesn't resonate in the context of the United States. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of unpronounceable term within, left within uh, uh, US political discourse. And so there's a substitution of this word radical for socialist. Uh, and if you think about it, that word doesn't convey a particular substance, a particular meaning. It's a very vague term. Uh, there are a whole range of other words which are invoked at this time to substitute for that kind of socialist uh, emphasis, including the word democracy itself. And indeed, social, uh, the Students for a Democratic Society uh, advocate what they call participatory democracy, which is a very nebulous term. It's kind of communitarian, very much based on consensus and so on. And out of this kind of uh, um, structure, if you want to call it that, but it's a very, very loose one, you get a, a close attention being paid not so much to the kind of principles which define the old left and which give it a degree of theoretical certainty and conviction, but to the ways that people feel about things, uh, how they identify, how they personally view things. There is this tremendous emphasis on the sensitivity uh, within rooms that are reaching various dis decisions. So the notion of participatory democracy is both a means and an ends in the way that it's defined. And it generates this increasing sensitivity amongst people, such that the, 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 the one way in which generating a, a, um, a degree of disagreement is, is, is produced is through the, the notion that you might be offended. Right? And that notion of being offended becomes a particularly <coughs> loaded one in these sorts of debates. And you can see the way that that kind of language, that kind of sensibility, feeds into uh, the identity-based movements of the later 1960s. Uh, that notion that people uh, are taking offence uh, very frequently emerges from that particular kind of uh, context. Now, um, there is, of course, a kind of irony to the fact that these uh, ideas are largely being transported from the United States and from the left on the United States, um, because that status that they have in terms of influence is not separable from the hegemonic position that the United States enjoys both economically and military in the 1960s. It's bound up with that. Uh, it's no accident, of course, that Jean-Luc Goddard talks about the 60s generation as the generation of Marx and Coca-Cola. 
is not just drawing our attention to, to, to the relationship to capital, but specifically US capital. And the influence of that conditioning this sense on the left that one of the aspirations is that it should be cool, it should be uh, radical in that kind of sense. Um, you know, there's a, a huge uh, cultural influence exerted by James Dean as the rebel without a clause, a cause over the, uh, over the imaginary of the US left in the 1960s, but more generally as well. Um, and th this ambiguity then over the status of the, the kind of left ideas that are being um, promoted by the left is, is a part of the left itself and its very constitution in, in, the, in, the, in the 1960s because although um, that left is oriented around uh, libertarian ideas, um, organisations like the Student for a Democratic Society uh, and others too uh, are not immune to influence from free market libertarian groups and indeed there are those who are members of the social students for a democratic society who are also members of for instance the republican young american for freedoms so there's an ambiguity about the kind of status of, of, of the freedom that's being demanded at that period which as we move through into the period of, uh, of neoliberalism and the kind of reconfiguration of societies that takes place through that means that that kind of libertarianism can be appealed to by market forces and we start to see countercultural forces merging into subcultural merging into marketized uh, uh, identified market based identified groups so that kind of transformation takes place over this um, period um, as well. Um, now, there's a final point that I wanted to make, and this, in a way, marks a, a difference from the kind of emphasis that Joanna's been making. Um, there was a necessity for these groups. There was a, a crucial necessity for these groups, which were, many of them, not accepted. And here I'm thinking in particular about the sexual uh, uh, libertarian movements. Uh, they were not accepted on the left. They had to, if they were considered part of the left, they had to be, they had to fight to be part of the left. And there are many flashpoints in the 1960s and beyond between those sorts of uh, sexual libertarian movements and the traditional left, so conceived. Um, many of these movements were not narcissistic in the way that Joanna has been outlining. They actually had universal aspirations. They thought that they could change the world through their uh, critique of the kind of uh, social conservatism that existed at that time. The irony for them was, for instance, in the case of the uh, lesbian and gay liberation movements, that they had universalist aspirations, but the responsibility for achieving those devolved on a minority. And so there was a, a disparity between the kind of nature of the constituency and the nature of their aspirations, which meant that all too often that expressed itself in the form of rights-based, narrowly defined kinds of uh, aspirations. There's a whole range of paradoxes there about the uh, uh, identity movements. Uh, I have a history of, of, of involvement in, in identity-based movements. I'm very proud of that history. Um, I don't think that identity-based movements are uh, uh, the, the ideal way of organising politically, but in certain circumstances they have been necessary and they may continue to be necessary in the present but they are attended by many of the kinds of dangers that Joanna was talking about earlier. Thanks. David, another David. 
Okay, so when I was asked to do this panel, um, you know, the first thing that came into my head was, God, where to start, you know, with the problems of, of all of this? Uh, you know, there's so many problems with sexual politics and identity politics more broadly nowadays um, that are problematic, you know. For, for that word for a start is, is problematic, you know. The way it's transferred from a sphere of theory and philosophy... Uh, into a kind of, firstly a political sphere and then into a kind of purely personal sphere of just shutting somebody down if you don't agree with them. Problematic now means you don't agree with me, so shut up uh, a lot of the time. Uh, and I thought, I'm, you know, I'm pretty overwhelmed here, like how do I do this in, in ten minutes, you know? And how have we got to the point where we're being pressured to debate uh, whether it's automatically racist for a white person to have dreadlocks, you know? And then my outrage... Um, from the left to that happening is just mirrored really by the outrage of the people who are outraged by white people having dreadlocks um, and indeed their outrage that anyone would defend the white person with dreadlocks um, and then we all just end up sounding like we, we write for the Daily Express anyway there's this persistent tone of kind of about, every, about everything you know it's, it's this kind of knee jerk uh, thing so there's a lot to unpick there forgive the dreadlock metaphor, uh, but, um, you know, to, to unpick, uh, I'll just here's a few issues that I'm going to concentrate on, and, and a lot of them kind of cross over with things that Joanna and, and David have said so far, and, and really I'm just taking that history that David's been speaking of in the 1960s a little bit further forward through to the 70s and 80s and thinking about the legacy that, that Lat has left us with. Um, so some of these problems, first of all, the excessive kind of judgment of individuals, right, for structural inequalities. Uh, secondly, the kind of the total lack of subtlety that you often get in these judgments of, of people, you know, there's no sense of nuance or particular context, it's just, you're wrong. Um, and then third, the way that people doing the judging often tend to assume that they know best, so why is it that that happens? Um, and, f and fourth, as I've been saying, the kind of curiously knee-jerk, aggressive tone to, to, to all of this. And all of these problems have histories, right? So the way I realised that I could focus this talk in the end was to kind of put those growing pains in some sort of context so that instead of just endlessly moaning about all of this, we can work out where it came from and perhaps what to do about it. Um, so I've just written a book on British punk, but more specifically the kind of post-punk uh, era, uh, what, what punk gave birth to uh, subculturally uh, in Britain and the way in which that related to the politics to the time, of the time, including uh, women's and gay liberation, um, more specifically women's liberation, but a little bit on sexual politics. And I remembered an article for the Manchester fanzine City Fun, which is absolutely legendary. And um, I, um, it's, they've got an archive of it at the Working Class Movement Library in Salford. So if you're ever there, I can, I can heartily recommend it. But uh, this article was, uh, was called The Joys of Oppression, uh, By Mouth or By Rectum. Um, <laughs> and it's, it, you know, the entire thing is uncannily Parisian. Uh, really, of a lot of the problems that we're facing now. But I'm just going to start with the, with the way it opens, and, and it opens like this. Um, there is always a simple solution. Um, there is an alternative to being a real person. I am a homosexual. I am a black. I am a Pakistani in lederhosen. I am a goldfish swimming backwards. I am so 
something other than your average, grotty, unspectacular prawl. Right? Um, right. And this, I should hasten to add, in terms of experience and only being able to speak from experience and all of that and everything, is written by a young working class, teenage working class lesbian from Stockport uh, called, called Liz Naylor. Um, and it's that last sentence, something other than uh, your average, grotty, unspectacular prawl. And I think in that one little sentence, what she's capturing there is actually enormous historical, political, economic processes. You know, the gradual breakdown of social solidarities in the post-war period. So this is being fuelled by, uh, by consumerism, which is kind of an... In- Andre Gortz writes really well about consumerism as this, uh, this individualist salve to that kind of social breakdown, that it always appeals to, to, to what you want in opposition to, to everybody else. Um, you know, we're seeing a change in economy that's been alluded to in some of the other panels, the restructuring of class and so on, and the destruction of the industrial working class. And so more and more people are seeing themselves in terms of, less in terms of belonging and more in terms of individual identity. I am this, I am that, I am, I am the other. Um, and the late 70s and early 80s in particular, not just the post-war period, but the late 70s and early 80s, lest we forget, sees the rise of neoliberalism in this country in, in the form of Thatcherism. And with neoliberalism comes the individualisation of everything, even, surprisingly enough, radical politics, uh, right? So the feminist writer Lynn Segal writes really, really well about the way that this starts happening to the women's movement really early, actually, in the late 70s and and through into the early 80s. Uh, And she's really anxious about this shift to individualism uh, within the women's movement. And the way she puts it is actually captured in in the title of of this panel, um, which is that we've moved from the personal is political to the political is personal. So, with the personalised political, I don't have any problem with that. Um, you know, I probably lean, I lean towards David's position that those movements are absolutely and utterly, entirely necessary, and the established left was grossly homophobic and sexist and totally unwilling to countenance those issues seriously. And I do think that certain, pers- certain issues that seem personal and insignificant, actually, when you put them in a collective context, are really important really important. Um, But what happens is is that we we move from a recognition that our personal lives are kind of shaped by politics and thus we need to act politically to change our personal lives and we need to do that collectively to a kind of retreat really into doing politics only at the level of the personal. That's the shift from the personal is political to the political is personal. And, you know, increasingly in the women's movement in the 70s and 80s, People start being judged for incorrect language, incorrect personal relationships with people, uh, incorrect behaviour and so on, in a way that sounds... When you read about this going on, you think, oh, everything was all right in the past, it didn't used to be this way. Actually, it kind of it goes back a long way, depressingly. Um, but back in the early 80s, when Lynn Segal's writing and when Liz Naylor is writing for, for this punk fanzine, you know, this kind of rampant individualism isn't yet common sense. Um, and what that meant was that it was a little bit easier to step back and gain perspective on what was happening here. I still think it's possible nowadays, but it was a little bit easier, you know, and, and they, they were able to kind of sort of work out how a politics, that as David points out, uh, these, these movements like women's liberation have very, very strong roots in a kind of collectivist left. 
they weren't always purely narcissistic and, and individualist, but they were kind of being infected with. <laughs> I wish I could come up with some kind of wit witty riposte to that, but I can't, so I'll just plough on regardless. Um, so yeah, we, we have this politics uh, of sexual liberation, of women's liberation and so on, that does come from a collectivist left basis, but it starts to become gradually kind of infected with insularity and a kind of self-regarding moralism. And it's kind of easy to, to apportion blame there, but what's really happening is there's a sort of strong hegemonic commonsensical pressure coming onto this politics from the, the overall shift from the fact that the left is losing and we're moving into this new, this new kind of... Uh, era of neoliberalism um, and so nowadays we're in that era we're absolutely saturated uh, with it and it makes it kind of hard to step back and diagnose the overall problem with all of this um, so you know these identitarian controversies flare up all the time in the media uh, and the, the response that you, I, I feel it myself all the time, you, you often want to take a position on it one way or another, uh, whereas sometimes it might be kind of more helpful to, you know, think about who's made it a public issue in the first place, who's pulling the strings, how's it, how's it arrived there in the media as this thing that we all need to be talking about, like, uh, like the dreadlocks thing, for, for example, you know, what's the motive there, how, how worthy of discussion uh, is it? And, if, and the reason why I think that, that kind of vigilance is important is because identity politics now has become so absorbed into neoliberalism that it's constantly being used to, to, to undermine and attack the left. So um, um, a Corbyn-led Labour is, is constantly being smeared uh, with this. Like the Laura Koonsberg example is only, is only the most recent one that uh, a petition was got up you know, to kind of to bring her in line for her, her obvious kind of contemptible bias against Corbyn. And suddenly, just because probably a few people did say sexist things about her online, the entire campaign is, is decried as, as, as sexist. Um, you know, and the irony of all of this, these attacks on a Corbyn-led Labour, of course, is that Corbyn actually belongs to that strand of the left that David's talking about that's been wiped out of history now. There's been this kind of bifurcation, this artificial bifurcation into an old left that apparently paid no attention to any of these issues. And then a sort of, you know, the, the sort of the social democratic end of the left that's, that's made compromise with neoliberalism, but what it's brought with it is the identity politics, and there's nothing in between. Well, actually, there was something in, in between. You know, there was a strand of the left that's kind of, that kind of fused class and identity politics about as sex successfully as, as it's ever been done. Not without issues, of course, but I think of lesbians and gays support the minors, for example. There were issues there, but there was something about that movement that you just don't really see now, nowadays. Um, so another difficulty that we have as neoliberalism has grown stronger, the left's grown weaker, uh, is that we've seen progressive politics retreat from a mass movement and become concentrated in certain institutions, um, and one of which is higher education. And this comes really down back to the point that I mentioned at the start, of the people who do the judging about what's problematic and what's not, what's correct and what's not, um, tend to assume that they know best. And so w why is that, right? Um, and, 
you know, the, the left has hidden out with, within certain institutions as, as we've become weaker, and, and HE, higher education, is one of them, and especially in the humanities, which is much more amenable to discussing the kind of cult- um, vitally important, I would stress, cultural questions of, of sexuality and gender, for example. And what that, what that produces is a certain group of people who are educated in those matters and are kind of ferociously intelligent and well-informed about them, um, but then they tend to assume that everybody who isn't is just stupid, really, and needs telling what to think uh, about it. I've encountered that like, far too many times. And I always think about my relatives in, La- in Lancashire with this. You know, Even the young ones are still using phrases like coloured gentlemen and stuff, which is just cringeworthy and unbearable. <laughs> like, but they're not racists. Like, well, at least the vast majority of them aren't. Maybe one or two of them, <laughs> I have to admit, depressing they are. But the vast majority of them aren't racists. But there are, there are contexts in which they might use that language where immediately they'd be kind of decried as bigots and monsters and, and stuff. So this, this behaviour kind of diffuses from academia onto the internet. You know, it becomes call-out culture, it becomes privilege checking. And it mirrors that tendency we see again and again on social media to, to think the worst of other people straight away, to immediately jump to the conclusion that they're bastards. Um, and again, this is a kind of sociopathic, like, neoliberal competitiveness um, at every level of, li- of, of life, you know, this is radical politics, radical left politics becoming infected with that, I know best, I'm better than you, uh, kind, kind of thing, you know, I'm going to shut you down, I'm going to call you out because I know better than, than you do. So I've spent quite a lot of time, you know, looking back and moaning about problems, but what about looking, looking forwards, you know, and... and how might we go about dealing with this excessive personalisation and moralising of, of identity politics? Um, and it's a tough one. Um, as I've tried to get across, we're up against big pressures, and I don't mean to sound kind of as though I, in turn, am, bl- uh, am blaming these people individually for these problems. These problems are bigger than us. Um, you know, the, the, these politics uh, have gone this way under intense historical pressures. So I'm, I'm not kind of individually blaming certain people for the way that, that things have gone. But one thing that I'll end on that we can that we can maybe debate is the idea that perhaps it's necessary to stop <coughs> policing individual behaviour so so excessively. <coughs> Um, because I think that that policing comes from an implicit lack of faith that, that the left actually has the ability to change things or, or determine the future. So what we think is that if we can't change things on a big scale, we'll settle for just bossing people around within the current setup and, and kind of damage limitation, really. And what that bossing around also does, and this is something that really came up in the satire session, uh, what that bossing around and telling people what to think really does is associate the left in people's minds with constraint. Mm-hmm. Um, with nannying, with, with being told off, you know, it really feeds all of that kind of right-wing painting of the, of the left as, uh, as, as nanny. Um, you know, po-faced, tight-arsed, the arbiters of political correctness. And rebellion, freedom of speech, fulfilment, all of these things that were kind of key to the counterculture and key to the new left... Um, you know, the, that, were, that were kind of that were sexy, you know, and that, that kind of made people want to be on, uh, on the left. We've lost all of those. They've been claimed by the right, the kind of alt-right that Angela Nagel was, was talking about, as the right has increasingly become uh, shaped, as, as David pointed out as well, by uh, economic deregulation. So as David really 
put it really well. You know, the name of the game on the right now is to break everything down. It's, it's capitalism. It's all that solid melts into air. It's constant transgression, and the right have got that ground, and, and we need to get it back. So, you know, all that time we spend having a go at individuals for sort of structural problems, we could be using to, to build more collective institutions that might help us get to the kind of world that we want to see in terms of sexual politics and, and gender politics. And I think it's that process actually of working together and giving each other the benefit of the doubt and being more cooperative and, and less arsy with each other that might actually offer signposts to kind of new and better desires, new and better relationships and new and better senses of, of self uh, rather than constantly sniping. So it's, it's fun to be with someone declared Liz Naylor in the joys of oppression. It's not fun to be alone. <laughs>